Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, cast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? We're building up a new world. I'm so grateful for this song I learned years ago from Dr. Vincent Harding. It helps me find my center when things are hard, which these days is often. This version is a live recording of a group called No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians here in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014. We were being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker in the song, and we're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you today. I'm a UCC pastor in Denver here on Cheyenne and Arapahoe land, and the faith organizer for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white people. White people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. Hmm. As I read through the text for this week again, I noticed so many of them are elemental. That is, the elements make a strong appearance in the Exodus and Psalm selections in particular. Wind and fire and water and earth, floods and seas rising and trembling earth, that's not where I'm going to go with this week's podcast, but I do want us to notice them, the elements, and just have our human hearts attuned to how those texts might land right now, when the West Coast is on fire, and the Gulf and East Coast and Caribbean are soaked and battered in hurricanes, and there are earthquakes shaking our neighbors. Even here in Denver, the smoke from the fires west and north of us has impacted us, Today, Tuesday the 12th, is the clear day in over a week because of the dense smoke, and lots of us have had headaches, trouble breathing, and burning eyes and sinuses. So we can't help but notice the elements right now. Air, fire, water, earth. They're rising up, making their presence known. Perhaps God is present in them though it may press our imagination to the straining point to understand how God could be present in death and destruction. So let's hold a moment recognizing the elements, air, fire, water, earth, and the impact they are having on our beloveds, on the land, on the creatures of the land, and water.
Before I start with the meat of things, I want to point out the Gospel of Matthew. Once again, we have a parable that involves the kingdom of heaven, which includes enslaved people. And this time, the enslaved person is treated with violence. Violence and torture against an enslaved person as a means to understanding forgiveness in the kingdom of heaven. You may remember my podcast from several weeks ago on the weeds and the wheat and my urging to myself and to you not to ignore the presence of enslaved people in the kingdom. And I'm telling you that again today. I'll put the same resources from before in the transcript so you have them in case you want to go that route this week. Because we have to address this. We do. And honestly, I still have no clearer idea what the heck Matthew is trying to say with this than I did in July. What the heck kind of kingdom Matthew is trying to imagine. It's imagination I want to talk about today. Since I was with you last, I took some vacation time and spent almost a week in Puerto Rico. It was my first time there, and I seriously fell in love with the land and the people and the creatures, especially being sung to sleep every night by the coquis, the little tiny frogs, which was a real joy. The coqui choir sounds like this. On our last day, we spent some time at El Morro, the ginormous fort, fortress, castle thing on the most northwest point of Viejo San Juan. El Morro was built over hundreds of years, going back to not long after Columbus's second disaster of a voyage and the placement of Juan Ponce de Leon as head colonizer in charge in 1509. The most recent addition was by the U.S. during World War II. Now the fort is a U.S. National Historic Site. I'm not kidding when I say the fort is massive. There are six levels built out over time, thick high walls with sentry boxes hanging over nothing, embrasures looking out over land and sea, rails for cannons and mortars, a huge tree and shrubless field of fire in case of land attack, a dry moat between the field and the fort, kitchens and bunk rooms and storage. Not to mention a heavy wall with sentry boxes all around Old San Juan, or at least it used to be mostly all, all around, it still is somewhat, and a second fort, San Cristobal, not far down the coastline from El Morro to the east. You can't help but feel a bit overwhelmed, or at least I couldn't. I stood at the embrasures, those narrow angled cutouts in the walls so cannons and rifles can have a clear shot while protecting the shooters, and I marveled at the stonework, at the creativity and imagination to build something layer by layer so seamlessly that it has withstood not only attack but also weather, sun and rain and winds and, yes, hurricanes. It was so hot that afternoon. <coughs> I stood at the embrasures and imagined looking down my rifle sight into the field, imagined rolling the cannon perfectly to fit the angle to target a Dutch ship wondered how much I'd be sweating, and how did they ever feel cool, and did someone bring them water, and what a brilliant design, impenetrable, 
How could anyone ever breach this fort? The port here, you see, was the first best stop for Spanish ships coming across the Atlantic. The winds and currents brought the ships practically to the harbor's entrance. From there, the Spanish could regroup, restock, and sail out to continue colonizing the rest of the Caribbean islands and the Americas. So the port protected entry to massive amounts of material and labor wealth. So the port, the harbor, had to be protected, not only for the island's sake, but to protect the rest of Spain's colonies from the British and Dutch and Portuguese. By the way, I'm one of those people who reads all the interpretive signs. With a skeptical eye, mind you, but I read them nonetheless, just so you know, in case it wasn't obvious. So here is this massive fort, and I stood in it in awe. I began to imagine not only defending the fort, but also how you'd ever go about trying to breach it. You'd need mortars on ships, I thought not just cannons, to bomb the interior of the fort, a dual attack from land and sea, a siege of some sort. I imagined myself imagining warfare. I imagined myself into the mind of a colonizer. And then I asked myself what the hell was wrong with me. How easy it was, I thought, with a sort of awful awe how easy for my imagination to get co-opted into things I don't even believe in. Things I would never want to perpetrate. How did that happen? I felt a sudden weight, the weight of the walls built by indigenous Taino and African enslaved labor. I wondered at myself, at what must be embedded in me as a white person fed on colonizer logic that made that colonizer imagination so easy to access. And I wondered at us, as humans, as we consistently put so much effort and creativity and imagination into warfare and domination and conquest. So much effort, so much creativity, so much imagination for a fort that over the period of about 400 years was only attacked four times, three by the British, one by the Dutch, and only on the fifth time when the U.S. bombarded it to oblivion, well, not really, because it's obviously still there, but yeah, during the Spanish-American War in 1898, all day long. Only then was an attack actually successful, which is how the U.S. came to own Puerto Rico which is not in the handy timeline on the Park Service map, by the way. So much effort, so much creativity, so much imagination, so much enforced, enslaved labor, so much suffering. Because we can imagine our way to thick, embrasured walls, but not to peaceful coexistence, to sentry boxes hanging over nothing, but not to living without warfare or enslavement. We live inside a diseased social imagination. That's the argument of Reverend Dr. Willie James Jennings in his book, The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race. We live inside a diseased social imagination, 
deformed by the logics of colonization, white supremacy, and capitalism that displace us from land and from each other. He says, Christianity, wherever it went in the modern colonies, inverted its sense of hospitality. It claimed to be the host, the owner of the spaces it entered, and demanded people enter its cultural logics, its ways of being in the world, and its conceptualities. The intimacy that marks Christian history is a painful one, he says, one in which the joining often meant oppression, violence, and death. If not of bodies, then most certainly of ways of life, forms of language, and visions of the world. Jennings argues that colonizers chose this displacement, chose violence when confronted with new knowledge, rather than the intimacy of belonging. And we continue inside those logics to this day. The early colonizers could not imagine, or perhaps could not let themselves imagine, a world where forts were not necessary, enslavement was not necessary, indigenous genocide was not necessary. They arrived at the bay and they built a fort. And I wonder, did anyone imagine asking why the Taino did not seem to need a massive fort? Imagination. Jennings is talking about a modern problem, but we can see it too in antiquity, a human problem of limited imaginations. That's the thread I see running through the text this week. Sometimes our scriptures blow us away with visions beyond our capacity to imagine, and sometimes their imagination is so clearly limited. We see both of those here, both of those capacities, but I want us to be able to see in these texts how our biblical cousins don't seem to be able to imagine liberation without imperial-style armies, to imagine elements without them choosing sides, to imagine grace without punishment, to imagine community without dominating power, to imagine forgiveness without violence, to imagine an economy, even a divine one, without enslavement. Jesus, even Jesus cannot imagine the kingdom of heaven without violence against enslaved bodies. Or at least Matthew can't imagine a Jesus imagining a kingdom of heaven without violence against enslaved bodies. Either way, it's a problem we can't escape. And we have to recognize that the limits of imagination we find in scripture inform the diseased social imagination inside of which we live today. Texts like these excused and undergirded the logics of colonization, enslavement, capitalism, and white supremacy as they developed in the early modern world. So if we're going to dismantle white supremacy, we need to be honest about the limits of human imagination both in scripture and in ourselves. We live inside a diseased social imagination. There's a story told about one of the sentry boxes looking out into the Atlantic, way out on the point of the wall beneath the other fort, San Cristobal. That sentry box, or garita, is called 
La Garita del Diablo, The Devil's Sentry Box. The story is that a soldier took up his shift there one night and was playing his guitar and singing to his love. And his love, in this story, a woman, appeared to him in the Garita, and they talked about a good life, a life of peace and with singing and of being able to be together and to have a family to love on. In the morning, when the next soldier came to take his shift, the singing soldier was gone. His empty uniform and his weapons were left on the floor of the garita. It was the devil, they say, the devil who tempted him to abandon his post. Be careful not to be tempted by the devil. So the story goes. Convenient, if you're the colonizer telling the story. But I wonder, what if we imagined it differently? What if the beloved who appeared to him was not a devil in the form of woman because we're not here for it, patriarchy? What if she's the divine feminine? The divine feminine appearing to the soldier and saying, if you want a good life, an abundant life of beloveds and children and song and peace and community, then abandon your post. Abandon your post defending colonization and enslavement, defending indigenous genocide and the destruction of land. Abandon your post. Lay down your weapons. Strip off your uniform. Come with me. Abandon your post, beloveds. The logics of white supremacy have assigned us our place, Willie Jennings says, but we can still imagine differently. Abandon your post, lay down your weapons. Come with me, she says, come with me. inside a diseased social imagination. That's what made it so easy for me to imagining bombarding the El Morro fort. So much imagination we spend defending with weaponry and with structures and with biblical interpretations and such a long list. So much imagination we spend defending whiteness, white supremacy. So much imagination. What we pay attention to grows. That's a key observation in Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy. That's actually your first call to action to get this astounding book and let it soak into your heart. Anyway, she says, everything is practice. What we practice at the small scale, she says, sets the pattern for the whole system. This is the invitation to practice the world we wish to see. 
I think this practicing the world we wish we begin to heal our imagination, how we begin to abandon our sentry boxes. So for part of your call to action this week, I want you to imagine. Pull together a group of your people. Take some time to imagine a future 5, 10, 20 years down the road. And you wake up that morning and pick up your whatever smartphones have morphed into by then and check the news and we're celebrating. We're celebrating that the world we wish to see is here. What is that world? Who are you celebrating with? What are the pictures filling up the news feeds? Share your visions with each other in words or crayon drawings or whatever, and then commit together to a practice that embodies the world you want to see, right where you are. For example, if you want to see a world with no policing, then commit to practicing ways to divest from policing right where you are. What we put at the small scale, she says, sets the patterns for the whole system. Finally, as a second call to action, or I guess a third, assuming that buying Adrian's book is number one on your list today, I'm going to put a transcript of local grassroots and predominantly people of color-led efforts to rebuild in the wake of the Gulf and Caribbean hurricanes. Why am I doing this? I've been reflecting that the immensity of the way in which the earth is reclaiming her body right now is also an opportunity for us to start over. This is not to dismiss the suffering that these um, disasters have caused, but to think about, to imagine that to build up that new world we wish to see, we can do that by supporting those on the ground efforts that are already imagining a new world and embodying their practice of it. Imagining a world without policing, without mass incarceration or prisons, without border walls, without borders at all, without armies, without enslavement, without gender binaries, without capitalism, without pipelines. A world of dignity and accountability for everyone. A world where we humans imagine ourselves part of the created whole, not outside of it. That ain't the Red Cross, y'all that never delivered on its promises to Haiti after the 2010 earthquake there. So let's support efforts of folks on the ground who are already committed to building a world that helps us all get free. Check the transcript for links. And thanks as always for joining me today. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from all of you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. And we'll be back next week with the awesome Nicola Torbett giving us a resistance word for the text for September 24th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. And finally, a big thanks to our sound editor this week, Paul Stewart. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. 
Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thank you so much. Build the